0: Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Scott Poling. You fall in love, only to have your heart crushed. Why? Life just doesn't seem fair at times. You want to have a child. It's been a dream of yours. And you're unable to. Just doesn't seem right. You're healthy. You take care of your body. You come back from the doctor and you get the news that it's cancer. Life just isn't fair. You start a business. You expand the business and then a pandemic hits out of nowhere. And everything comes to a screeching halt. Life isn't fair. You're living your life you're loving your family, and your world is turned upside down as tanks are rolling through your town and planes are firing missiles. Life isn't fair. And it's in those times when life doesn't seem fair that we're tempted to question our faith. is, Is it even worth living for God? Is it okay to even question my faith? Is it worth living for God? Because sometimes, Pastor Scott, I don't know if it is. Is it worth serving God? Is it worth giving to God? Because I'm not sure if it really even makes a difference in the long run. Is it worth even coming to church? Because some days I don't know if it is. And then you look around at the people of this world, and they seem to be doing just fine without God. They seem to be successful without God. They seem to be fine without going to church. See, sometimes our glass really does seem half-empty. And at other times, it's like we've dropped it, and and it is just shattered into a million pieces, and you just want to give up, and you just want to walk away, and you just want to call it quits. And maybe you've never voiced it like that, but you've thought it. You've thought it in the quietness of your heart. And today, we see a man who just wants to give up. Oh, and by the way, he's a man in ministry, serving God in the house of God. And he's going to bear his soul. And he's going to basically say, I am frustrated with life and I am frustrated with problems and I'm frustrated as I look at all the people in this world that seem successful without God. And he's ready to walk away from God and walk away from ministry and walk away and be done with it all. And his name is Asaph. He's one of three Levites that are serving as musicians, serving as worship leaders in the house of God. He shares his story with us in the book of Psalms, Psalm 73. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 73. I want you to understand that even those who serve God are not immune to doubts about God. Even those in ministry can struggle in their spiritual walks. You're not the only one. And feel alone and believe that life is not fair. And so, what does Asaph do? He he takes us on his journey of despair. And what he does is he pulls off the bandages on his wounds and he just lets us see the raw emotions of his life and the struggles of his life. That's one thing I love about the Bible. It's brutally honest. There's no sugarcoating anything, no downplaying the struggles of life. You know what the Bible says? it's okay for you to be real. It's okay for you to hurt. It's okay for you to struggle. And I want you to see other people that struggled in their faith and their walk with God. Read along with me Psalm 73. Let's just look at the first 12 verses of Psalm 73. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, their bodies are well fed, they're not in trouble like others, they're not afflicted like most people. Therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their their eyes bulge out from fatness, the imaginations of their hearts run wild, they mock, they speak maliciously, they arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, as people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease. And they increase their wealth. Just the rich just keep getting richer? He's struggling. And he's struggling deep. And his glass isn't just half empty. It has a leak. And how is he going to refill it? How, how, how are you going to restore your hope when you've lost hope? And that's what he's going to teach us in this psalm. And some of you are struggling. You're struggling deeply. And your cup isn't just half empty, it's almost totally empty. And you feel like it got a leak. And we're going to see some truths this morning on how to stay positive. God's perspective. The first thing we need to do is this. You've got to settle on the goodness of God. You have got to believe that God has been good, he is good, and he will always be good. And that's how he starts off in verse one. God is indeed good, and he's been good to Israel. You've proved this to the nation of Israel time and time again. You chose them and made a covenant with them and you've blessed them and you've delivered them and you've kept every single one of your promises and he's not done with keeping his promises to Israel. And then he says, I know that you're good. You're you're good to those who are pure in heart, verse one. It's a general way of saying, all of God's children, you've been good. Not to those who are sinless. None are sinless. But you've been good to those who love God and seek God and are faithful to God. And they're pure in heart. They're committed to God. You've been good, God. And he has been good. And listen carefully. The enemy wants you to believe otherwise. The enemy of your soul wants you to question the goodness of God. And doubt the goodness of God. Deny the goodness of God and forget all about the goodness of God. He's been doing it since the garden. Derek Kidner put it this way. This was the nerve the serpent had touched in Eden to make even paradise appear an insult. That's what the enemy can do. He can take sinless perfection and flip it on its head and say God is not fair and God has been bad and God has not been good. Be careful. He has been good. Don't let the enemy twist it he's been good to israel he's been good to the people of god and what you need to know and what i need to know is that he's been good to you and that he's been good to me and i just want to quickly share some scriptural reminders of that because some of you here are doubting it you know what psalm 7 psalm 34 says you need to taste and see that he's good how happy is the person who takes refuge in him You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food, go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Taste and see that he's good. You know how you do that? You take refuge in him and you'll see. You fear him and you'll see. You seek him. You just taste and see. Your God is good. Every day is good. Psalm 23, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. How many days? All the days of your life. God has been good to you every single day of your life and he pursues you with his goodness. Psalm 31 says, how great is your goodness which you've stored up for those who fear you. God has a storehouse of goodness for his children. The presence of everyone you have acted for those who take refuge in you. Psalm or Matthew 7, 7 11. If you then, he's speaking to us who are evil, yes, we're evil, we're sinful, we're depraved. And yet, we still know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will your Father, who is sinless, who is perfect, perfect in His love for you, give good things to those who ask Him? Your God is good. Ask Him. And every good thing you've ever received is from your good God, James chapter 1. So don't be deceived. Don't let the tempter, don't let the enemy of your soul deceive you. God is good. And as a matter of fact, dear brothers and sisters, every good perfect every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good thing that has ever happened to you, every perfect thing that's ever happened in your life comes down from the Father of lights who does not change like a shifting shadow. Psalm 84, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He doesn't withhold anything good from those who live with integrity. And not only that, he even works everything together for good. Romans 8:28. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So settle the goodness of God once and for all. He has been good, he is good, and he will always be good to you, child of God. And do not believe the deceitful lies of your enemy. God is good. That's how you start to refill your cup and restore your hope. The second thing we, we, you and I need to do is this. Guard your eyes from envy. And that's what he's talking about from verse 2 to 12. And, he, and he's brutally honest in verse, tw- verse 2. I almost walked away from God. As for me, my feet almost slipped, my, my steps nearly went astray. This is a man in ministry going through a crisis of faith. He's overwhelmed with doubts and discouragement, and he's ready to walk away from everything and anything to do with God. And what was the problem? Envy. I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, verse 3. See, envy is the ice on which many Christians slip and fall in their Christian walk. You take your eyes off the goodness of God and you start looking at everybody else, what they have, and what they've been able to do, and where they've been able to go, and you're slipping. You got to get your eyes back on the goodness of your God. He has been good. He is good. He will always be good and get your eyes off of other people. The problem is he's starting to covet and he's getting bitter. He's getting jealous and envious of other people. And jealousy and envy are very dangerous, more dangerous than anger. Proverbs 27, 4, fury is cruel and anger is a flood, but who can withstand jealousy See, anger can end abruptly, blow up, it's over, it's out of your system, so to speak. Envy and jealousy can linger for a long time, and nobody knows the struggle you're going through with it. Nobody sees how jealous you are of that person, how envious you are of that thing. And it's subtle, and it's silent, and it rots you from the inside out. That's what envy and jealousy does. What did he envy? Look at it, verse 3. The arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I, look how they live. Look at the house they have, the car they drive, and the way they get to decorate, the clothing they wear, and the jewelry and the success. And how about those yachts? Six hundred million dollar yachts. What is a, every pastor should have a yacht? That's crazy. He's envious of their prosperity. He's envious of of the ease of their life in verse 4. They have an easy time until they die. They seem to enjoy a long, prosperous life without any struggle. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, He deserves the hottest hell, and yet he has the warmest nest. Life is just not fair. And not only that, he's envious in verse 4 also of their physical well-being. Their bodies are well-fed. They never lack food. They never lack drink. They have no problem eating at nice, fancy, expensive restaurants. They have no problem. There's no worry with inflation for these people. They're not, they're not worried about going to the grocery store and paying a little bit of extra for meat. They don't care about the price at the pump. They're going to fill it up prosperity, ease of life, physical well-being. He's envious of their lack of problems, verse 5. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. What? He's stalking their Facebook page. <laughs> he, he's seeing all the places they go and the vacations they take and all the things they buy and, and, and he's just feeding their envy, He's his envy. He's just feeding it. I want you to understand something. He's assuming a lot of things that may not be true in their life. See, envy takes on an imagination of its own. And all of a sudden, it's it's just going on and on and on. And and they may not even be true. Someone has said the reason we struggle with insecurity or envy is because we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel. If that's not social media for you. Envious, and then it turns to anger. Look at verse 6. Pride is their necklace. Look at these people. They just flaunt who they are and flaunt what they have. And violence covers them like a garment. They, they think all the money they have and influence and power they have, it's almost like a license. It almost gives them permission to harass other people and bully other people and oppress other people. And verse 7, their eyes bulge from fatness. What does that mean? It means they're so self-indulgent. This, this opulent, uh, wasteful, excessive lifestyle. And they're spoiled rotten. Verse 7, the imaginations of their heart just run wild. It's the picture of a river that just kind of overflows its banks and goes wherever it wants to go and does whatever it wants to do and they buy whatever they want to buy and they are living the dream. Life isn't fair. Oh, and then they mock and they threaten in verse 8. And they speak maliciously and arrogantly, um, threaten opposition. They just have a chip on their shoulder. Look down their noses at others. And then they mock God. They rail against heaven. Look at verse 9. They set their mouths against heaven, while at the same time, their tongues strut across the earth. So they badmouth God and Christianity and anything to do with God, and at the same time, they brag and boast about themselves as they walk on this earth. What a turnoff. No one would want to follow these people. Oh, really? Look at verse 10. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. This is crazy. Some of God's people look up to these people and they want to be around them and they want to listen to them and they want to follow them because they're impressed with their power and their position and their money and their influence and their fame and their fortune. Just look at the amount of followers they have on Instagram and TikTok, Twitter, social media platforms. And some of you follow them. Why? Why would you follow someone who arrogantly, maliciously condemns God and anything to do with God? And at the same time, arrogantly boasts all about themselves. Posts about it, talks about it, brags about it. See, some of you need to stop following these kind of people. You need to unfollow him today. And you need to start following your God and walking closely with him. You got to stop being so impressed with this world. There's nothing impressive about this world. 1 John chapter 2 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. But these people want nothing to do with God. Look at verse 11. They mock God. How, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Yeah, He does. I mean, their insolent pride and presumption. They're going to be accountable for every single word they've spoken. And finally, he's just disgusted in verse 12. And he just can't stand it, and he blurts out, look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Just look at them. He hates them, but he can't stop looking at them. And he can't stop envying them. And he can't stop talking about them. And this is a man in ministry, and he's struggling deeply. His glass is more than half empty. How's he going to refill it? How's he going to restore his hope? He's got to settle in the goodness of God and guard your eyes against envy. And here's the third one. Cancel your pity party. Cancel it. Cross it out of your calendar. Delete it. Enough is enough. And he throws a really big one right here. Look at verse 13 through 16. Psalm 73. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? I'm afflicted all day long, boo-hoo, and punished every morning, oh my. And if I decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. I want you to notice what he has here, and he's got a really bad case of it. It's called a god owes me attitude. Oh, God owes me. And he questions if godliness is worth it. Did I purify my hands for nothing? Did I live a godly life for nothing? And he talked about purity of heart earlier. Did I purify my heart, verse 13? And in verse 1, indeed, he's good to the pure in heart. He's struggling here, though. Why am I living a godly life? What difference does it even make? There doesn't seem to be any difference between a person that lives a sinful life and a person that lives a holy life. Living right just hasn't paid off for me. Living a godly life hasn't helped me. Serving God in his house hasn't helped me. Leading God's people in worship hasn't even helped me. What he's revealing here is a very, very selfish, self-centered attitude. What's in it for me, God? What's in it for me? God, you owe me. I went to church today. God, you owe me. I worked in the nursery and changed a poopy diaper. God, you owe me. I put money in the offering plate. God, you owe me. Self-centered. I'm so godly. I'm Mr. Spiritual Wonderful. I deserve so much more. You don't want what you deserve. And I don't want what I deserve. I deserve the judgment of a thrice holy God who sits on his throne. I deserve judgment for my sin. And instead of judgment, God has given me his amazing grace. And instead of judgment, God has given me his mercy. God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe me anything. We're sinners saved by grace. See, we don't serve God because of what we can get out of God. We serve God because He is worthy. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of our worship. He's our Creator. He's the lover of our souls. He's worthy. But at this point in His life, He's bemoaning His life in verse 14. I'm afflicted all day long, punished every morning. Again, I struggle from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed. Every day is affliction, all day long. He sees his suffering as punishment. But I just want to pause right here and say time out. If you didn't listen to the message last week, listen to it. It's on pain, it's on problems, and it's on the purpose behind them. So go to atharvest.church and listen to it. If you did listen to it and you're still struggling, listen to it again as God's word just teaches us about pain and teaches us about problems and how good they really are for us. But he's throwing a major pity party and some of us are really good at throwing pity parties. As a matter of fact, you could be an event planner for pity parties, some of you. You're that good. You're worse than Puddle Glum, the marsh wiggle, and C.S. Lewis's the silver chair, that wet blanket of a character who's always expecting the worst in everything and assuming the worst in everyone. But he catches himself. Asaph catches himself because he knows what he's thinking isn't right. And some of us know what we're thinking. It's not right. And so he doesn't verbalize it in verse 15. He says, if I had decided to say these things aloud, and I didn't, but I was tempted to, I would have betrayed your people. He's saying, God, it was in my heart. This is how I was feeling. And it was in my head. This is how I was thinking. And it almost came out of my mouth. And I'm so glad it didn't. See, be careful. Be careful what you say to people about your walk with God when you are struggling spiritually. He said, I would have betrayed your people man, I would have hurt so many people if I'd have walked away from God. I would have discouraged so many believers. I would have undermined their faith in God. See, walking away from God doesn't just affect you. It affects your wife your husband. It affects your children, your grandchildren. It affects the family of God and your friends. You're part of a bigger family. You're part of the family of God. So be careful. Be careful not to tear down the faith of other Christians and discourage them in your moment of struggle. Be careful what you say and what you do. In verse 16, he says, when I tried to understand this, and I tried, I just couldn't get it. It just seemed hopeless. So he's overwhelmed with envy and anger and disappointment of God, and I don't understand. It's kind of like a student. Some of you in school right now, others you've been in school, you know what it's like when you take that... Got to take this test, this exam, and it's so hard, and you don't know the answers, and the time is ticking, and you're under pressure. And he's going through a test of life right now, and he doesn't know the answers, and he's under a lot of pressure, and you know what that's like. You don't know the answers, and you're going through this test, and you don't understand. Here's the good news: you don't have to understand. Proverbs 3:5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean where? Don't rely where? On your own understanding. There's some things in this life you can't figure out. And you gotta lean on God, and rely on God, and trust in God. And in all your ways, know him. What does that mean? It means know him in everything, and bring him into every detail and every area of your life. And what will he do? He will make your paths what? Straight. You don't have to understand it all, Christian. You just trust in the one who does and keep trusting in him. You may say, well, I don't understand it. He didn't understand. He was at a total loss. What am I to do? Do what he did. Go to church. Get to church. Get off your backside and get to church. That's exactly what he does. Get to God's house. Look at verse 17 through 20. This is the turning point. In verse 16, the very end, he says, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Get to God's house. Get to church. Then I understood. In his context, I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. He says, man, going to church made all the difference. Do you notice here? He doesn't say pray about it. He doesn't say worship and sing songs. He doesn't say fellowship with God's people. He doesn't say listen to the word of God preached or taught. He says get to God's house where all those other things take place. Where you fellowship with one another where you sing praise to God, where we dive into the word of God and we listen to it being taught or preached, where you draw close to the Lord. And it happens in God's house. Psalm 63, God, you are my God and I eagerly seek you. Where's he gonna seek him? I'm thirsting for you and my body faints for you in a land that's dry and desolate without water. So I gaze on you, say it with me in the sanctuary, get to God's house, get to church. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. See, God's house solved the problem of his envy. It was getting to God's house that solved the problem of his anger. It was going to God's house that solved the problem of his pride. It was God's house that solved the problem of his self-pity. See, your pity party ends when your worship party begins. Get to God's house is where you need to be, consistently in God's house. It's God's house that brings clarity. It's God's house that brings understanding. It's God's house that clears up our confusion. It's God's house that gives this true perspective on life and living. And it's God's house. The mountains can't do that for you. The beach can't do that for you. More money is not going to do that for you. Sports on the weekend, watching or playing, is not going to do that for you. God's house is going to do this for you. That's why the enemy doesn't want you in church. The enemy doesn't want you in God's house. He doesn't want you near God's house. He doesn't want you with God's people, worshiping, learning. Don't let the enemy win. Get to God's house. Hebrews 10 let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. That's what happens when God's people come together in God's house. We encourage one another and we pray for one another and we spiritually just enable and help one another. He says not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. Some are in a very bad habit these last couple years of not being in God's house and making every excuse under the book not to be in God's house. He says, some are in the habit of doing this, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You don't have long. Time is short. Get to God's house. For some of you online, it's time to come back to God's house. You need to be with God's people. You that in person. I want you to get real loud in just a second, okay? As loud as you can be, I want you to say on the count of three, we miss you. And I want you to say it loud to the people at home here. And you ready? One, two, three. We, is let's do it again even louder. One, two, three. Is Get to God's house. You need to be with God's people. <laughs> this was interesting. I preached this last night and I didn't plan this. But right before the service, we had a lady sitting on the third row there and we had a couple sitting on the third row here. I hadn't seen them in a while and they both came up to me separately and said, Pastor Scott, I haven't been here in two years. It's so good to be in God's house. And this couple, we haven't been here in two years. It's so good to be in God's house. Let me tell you something there's a big difference. And there were tears in these people's eyes because they were in God's house. I want you to understand the veil is lifted on the mind, the eyes are opened when you're in God's house. And he learns this. He doesn't need to be envious of the wicked. Look what he says in verse 17 Then I understood their destiny. So, in other words, the last thing I should be doing is envying these people. I should be pitying them, is what he says. Because this life is all they have, and they're about to lose all they have forever. The wicked of this world, that's all they have is right now. And they're going to lose it all. He says, indeed, verse 18 you put them in slippery places, you make them fall into ruin. So, so it's not my feet that are going to slip, the psalmist realizes. Remember verse 2? My feet almost slipped. No, 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 no. It's the wicked of this world that are going to slip. And they're going to they're fall fast. Look at verse 19. Suddenly swept away. Desolation, terror. They're going to lose it all. Verse 20. He says it's short. Like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. Think about how short a dream is. You go to bed. You wake up. You remember a dream. It's gone. He says... I want you to understand, the wealth and the prosperity of the wicked is the length of a dream. It's gone. That fast. And then they face the personal rejection of God. He will despise their image. See, the Vladimir Putins and the people of this world are just a vapor that appear and then they disappear. And they face the retribution of a holy God. Psalm 37 is a great psalm to remind us and give us perspective on this. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Don't envy those who do wrong. They wither quickly like grass. They wilt like tender green plants. Be silent before the Lord. Wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger. Give up your rage. Don't be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers, verse 9, will be destroyed. And in verse 10, a little while, the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he won't be there. Verse 12, the wicked person schemes against the righteous, gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him. Why? Why would the Lord laugh? Because he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword, strung the bow, to bring down the poor, the needy, to slaughter those whose way is upright. Their swords will enter their own hearts. Their bows will be broken. And God's house is what brought the right perspective God's house was the solution for his envy and his pride and his anger and his self-pity. Get to God's house. And then lastly, settle on the goodness of God. Wait, Pastor Scott, we said that. Yeah. Comes full circle. And he ends where he began. And it's like he snaps out of it. And he grasps this reality. But first, it's confession time. Look at verse 21 and 22. He says, when I became embittered and my inmost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. Do you get this? Please get this. Don't don't miss this. When you forget how good God is and you don't guard your eyes from envy and you keep throwing your pity parties and you stop going to church, you start thinking and acting like a dumb animal. And that's the truth. By all means, you better settle on the goodness of God. And you better guard your eyes from envy. And you better stop throwing your pity parties. And you better get your backside to church. Because if you don't, you're going to start thinking like a dumb animal, acting like a dumb animal, and talking like a dumb animal. He says, I became embittered It's the word for soured, like sour milk when it goes bad. It smells bad and it tastes bad. And the people around you, you're making them sick because you're so sour in this life and you're so bitter over things in your life. Man, there's so many bitter, sour people and they're in the church too. Some of you may be here today. You need to get that cup full and you need to get it fresh, fast, fast. It's the danger of a wounded heart in verse 21. My inmost being was wounded. Be careful. Be careful when your heart is wounded. It'll sour you. It'll affect how you feel. It'll affect how you think. And you won't think straight. And your feelings will lead you astray. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? And a hurt heart is even more deceitful. And he's acting like a dumb animal. He says in verse 22, I was stupid. I didn't understand anything. He's just being brutally honest. And I appreciate his honesty. He said, I was animalistic. I was unthinking animal towards you. I was just acting on impulse, acting on instinct, acting in the moment, throwing my pity parties, throwing my little tizzy fits, only seeing what's right in front of me instead of seeing God's big picture that is revealed in his word when I get to his house. And then he goes from confession time to proclamation time. Look, we pick it up in verse 23 through the end of the chapter. Look what he says. Yet I'm always with you, God is good. You hold my right hand, God is good. You guide me with your counsel, God is good. Afterward, you're going to take me to glory. You're good, God. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. And my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. My portion forever, God is good. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell all about you. My God is good. And do you realize in those last six verses, there's 13 references to God? Always with you. You hold my hand. You guide me. Your counsel. You take me to glory. Do you realize what's happened? He's no longer focused on other people. He's focused on God, his good God. He's no longer focused on himself. He's focused on his good God. Look how things change when you start focusing on the goodness of God. And that's what we learn here. Let's walk through it. God is good. Why? He's always with me. This never interrupted, never separated relationship. You know, there's thousands of families right now in Ukraine that are separated because of these battles and this conflict. You have wives that are separated from husbands. You have moms that are separated from their sons. You have children that are separated from their fathers. You know what God says? No matter the conflict, no matter the intense battle in your life, you will never be separated from me. Ever. I'm always with you. Never be separated from his love, we're told in Romans 8. Hebrews 13, he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Doesn't matter how how the conflict is raging or the battle is there. He's always with you. Not only that, we're told next in verse 23, he holds my hand. He holds my right hand. I gotta tell you, sometimes I'm nervous before I preach. Okay, I'm always nervous before I preach. And sometimes I sit down here in my little chair And I pray this. I say, Lord, would you just hold my hand and walk me up there? God, would you just hold my hand and walk me up here? Because those people are mean. (laughs) And they make me nervous. I think about Paul. You know, Paul, in the New Testament, he says, I was criticized for my preaching, I was criticized for my writing, and I was criticized for my appearance. Everybody who stands on this platform is criticized by different people at different times. And it's hard to stand up here. Because we'll be criticized for what we say or what we don't say. We'll be criticized for how we look or not look. And so we need God to hold our hands. I remember when my children were young, and you know, I have five, five kids, three boys, and those little boys when they were young, they're just squirrely little boys, man, okay? Okay? And you know when you're crossing a street with a little boy and you got to take hold of their hand? Do they want to hold your hand? Oh, no, no. Big boy stuff. I don't need to hold your hand. And you just got to hold on to that hand whether they like it or not and you don't let go and you just kind of drag them across the road. <laughs> why, why do you do that? Because you love those kids and you want to protect those kids. And that's what God does with his kids. He always holds our hands. Even when we don't want God to hold our hands. He says, no, I'm going to hold your hand." Because you don't always know what's best for you. And I love you. And I'm going to protect you. And by the way, he doesn't just hold our hand now. He holds it forever. John 10. He gives eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand, said Jesus. And my Father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You are safe in the hands of your God. And he never lets go. He is good. Your God is good. He guides and he counsels me in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. It's ongoing. And the psalmist has just experienced this in God's house. He has received the counsel of God. He has received the wisdom and the the guidance of God. That is my prayer for you every single time you come into this building and you hear the word of God preached. And I pray it's happened today. God has given you guidance today. God has counseled you today. That is the goodness of your God. And not only that, he's so good, he then takes me to heaven. Think about this. So I I want you to get the progression here of what your God has done. He takes hold of your hand in the past and never lets go. He guides you presently with his counsel every moment of every day. And then, future, he takes you to glory. You're not staying here, child of God. You're not staying here. You're being transported off this earth one day. Psalm 49 God will redeem me from the power of Sheol. That's the power of the grave. For he will take me. Do do you understand what we just sung earlier? Glory to our God who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy is the Lord. That's the goodness of our God. Psalm 23, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord how long? Forever. How much different is our future than these people's future? The wicked. There's no glory. Don't envy the wicked. There's no glory. There's only judgment. So look at verse 19, desolation, swept away by terrors. Look at verse 27, certainly perish. Your God is good to you. He's all that I need is what we see next in verse 25. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. I have you in heaven, God. You're everything I need. You're the only thing I need. When the wicked die, they have nothing, not even God. They lose everything. I have you in heaven, God. I have you on earth. I desire nothing on this earth. What's your most cherished possession? What's my most cherished possession? House, car, oh no, my $600 million yacht. That's right. (laughs) My most cherished possession is my relationship with God because I will never lose that now or ever. What more do I need? He's always with me. He holds me. He guides me. He counsels me. He takes me to glory. I get you now, God. I get you forever, God. That's why he says, nothing on this earth compares to my God. Don't allow anything to take place of your God on this earth. You're going to lose it. Even your marriage. There is no marriage in heaven, we're told. You can love your people, but love your God most. Number one commandment, God is good. He's my strength. My flesh and my heart may fail. See, one day soon, I'm going to come to the end of my life. You're all invited to my funeral. This, this body only has so many miles. This heart only has so many ticks. And so do yours, only so many beats. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God, don't you love those two words? He makes all the difference, now and forever. He's the strength of my heart. So when my heart physically fails, he's my strength. And when my heart emotionally fails, when it's broken, when it hurts, he's my strength. His grace is sufficient. His power is perfected in weakness. My God and your God is good. And then it says, he's my portion forever, verse 26. What does that mean? He's my portion forever? Remember Asaph. Asaph is a Levite. And Levites had no portion in the land. We're told in Numbers 18, The Lord told Aaron, You will not have an inheritance in the land. There will be no portion among them for you. I am your portion and your inheritance among the Israelites. Do you realize that's what your God is? He's your inheritance. He's your portion. I don't need vast tracts of land. I have God. Uh, By the way, I'm going to Beulah land. Heaven, paradise. I don't need all the stuff of this world. I have God. I can't take any of this stuff with me anyway. God is our portion now and forever. God is good. And by the way, he is good. He will judge the wicked, we see next in verse 27. They're not gonna get away with anything. Don't you think for a second the wicked of this world get away with anything? Verse 27, they're far, uh, those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy the who are unfaithful to you. Understand that. Judgment is certain and it's coming. And, and God is good. He is present with me. We're told he's always with me. Now he says he's present with me. So God's presence is my good. His nearness is my good. And that's his one thought right now. God, you're so good. You're near me. You're present with me. That's what he's concerned about. Do you realize he's not concerned about fairness anymore? He's not to, concerned about envy anymore. Because he's, he's thinking about the goodness of God and the nearness of God. And that's where you and I need to be. Think about God's goodness as nearness. You have the greatest of all good. You have the nearness of your God. And then he says, he's my refuge. I have made the Lord God my refuge. You know what he's decided to do? God, I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm going to keep loving you and serving you. God, I am not going to give up on you. What do I have if I give up on God? That'd be the stupidest thing in my life to give up on God. Who do I have in heaven but you? Who do I have on earth but you? I'm not walking away from my God. No way. No way. He says, I'm going to make you my refuge. Christian, get back to making God your refuge. Not your money, not your position, not any relationship. Your God is your refuge. Make him your refuge. And for you who've started to walk away, you need to come right back. Say, God, what else do I have in heaven and who else do I have on earth? I want you to be my refuge again. And maybe you're online and maybe you're here in person and you have never made God your refuge. You need to call out to the Lord and save you, to save you. And he will. He'll forgive you. He'll be your refuge. He'll be your salvation. He'll be your rock. Call out to him and let him save you. Make that decision for Christ. And God is good. And you know how he ends it here? I'm just going to tell everyone about him. Wow, what a difference, huh? So I can tell about all you do. He's no longer thinking about telling everybody how unfair life is and inviting everybody to his pity party. He's canceled the party, people. And now I'm going to tell everybody about how good my God is. And do you notice how it's changed at the beginning, verse 1? God is good to Israel, and God is good to his people. God is good to me. That's what he said, these last six verses. God has been good to me. No more whining. No more complaining. No more griping about how hard my life is from sunup to sundown. God has been good all day long, every day, storing up goodness. God is good, and I'm going to tell everybody about the goodness. Of, and all of a sudden, his cup is full and overflowing. God is good. And that's how you refill your cup and restore your hope. You settle on the goodness of God, and you guard your eyes from envy. And you cancel that pity party. And you get to God's house and don't let anything keep you away. And you settle on the goodness of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You as believers in Jesus, would you just thank God for his goodness right now? Just thank him for every perfect gift from above, all the goodness in your life. Thank Him for the stuff of earth. Thank Him for the stuff in heaven. Thank Him for who He is. Would you confess any sin right now to God? Would you confess envy and jealousy and ask for forgiveness? Would you ask Him to forgive you for whining? and complaining. Would you ask him to forgive you for not being in church like you should be in church if that's you? Make him your refuge. God, I rely on you and you alone. I trust in you and you alone even if I don't understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. I trust in you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You may be here today, online or in person, and you've not come to faith yet. I want you to understand today that can change. You have a God who came out of heaven to die for your sins, and he loves you. And he will save you, and he will forgive you of all your sin. And you may say, Scott, that's what I need. I need forgiveness. Can he really do that? Yes, and he will. He died for you. In the quietness of your heart, would you just call out to the Lord right now? Just say words like these to the Lord sincerely. Lord, would you save me? Would you be my refuge? God, would you forgive me of all my sin? Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I can't save myself, only you can save me. There's no good deed that I can do. You've got to save me. I place my faith in you alone. I place my faith in you alone. Please forgive me and save me. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit atharvest.church.